This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with James Doyle, lecturer in philosophy at Harvard University. His new book, No Morality, No Self, Anscombe's Radical Skepticism, is just out from Harvard University Press. This is the centennial year of the birth of G.E.M. Anscombe, one of the major philosophical figures of the 20th century within the analytic tradition. A close associate of Wittgenstein, Anscombe contributed fundamental insights in philosophy of mind, action theory, and ethics. In his new book, Doyle considers two of her major papers. In Modern Moral Philosophy, she denies that the term moral picks out a special type of obligation or reason, and argues for reorienting ethics towards understanding concepts of virtue. In the first person, she denies that the term I really is the device of self-reference that it seems to be. Doyle clarifies and assesses her arguments in response to a number of prominent critics, and in doing so, he shows how Anscombe continues to inspire thinking about fundamental issues in ethics, philosophy of language, and philosophy of mind. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, James Doyle. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, very happy to be here. So I'm really interested in talking about your book on uh, G.E.M. Anscombe, uh, No Morality, No Self. It's an interesting, you know, it's a different book in that it focuses on two of her papers and, you know, sort of defends, it defends and clarifies her arguments. Um, uh, response to certain critics and so forth. So it's 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 um, it's a interestingly uh, structured uh, sort of book, um, uh, somewhat different from what we usually do. But before we we get into the the articles that you focus on, uh, it'd be good if you could tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your your background as a philosopher, and then how you came to write this book. My original uh, philosophical interests as a PhD student were actually in uh, in political philosophy. Um, but then, soon after graduating, my interests began to shift, uh, and they've uh, shifted quite a lot, sort of subsequently also. But I became interested more in in ethics and the history of ethics and and ancient philosophy. And I I sort of had realised that that it sort of turned out that a lot of the philosophers I particularly admired had a background in, in Greek philosophy. 
uh, and I sort of developed a kind of paranoia that that they were sort of onto something that I didn't know about. So I uh, I sort of trained myself up in in ancient philosophy, uh, and partly as a result of coming to understand, as I thought, Anscombe's 1958 paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, better, uh, I, I started to become more interested in issues in um, moral psychology and the philosophy of action. That's to say, taking seriously uh, her suggestion that there were questions in those areas of philosophy that needed to be dealt with more satisfactorily before we could even sort of move on to ethics at all. In any case, I've, I've been sort of continuously interested in Anscombe's work, and especially modern moral philosophy, which I first read uh, as an undergraduate. I mentioned in the book I was completely bewildered, um, but also weirdly kind of fascinated when I first read that as an undergraduate. And the way I came to write the book was, well, it began as, as two separate articles on those two papers, um, which then grew in size and became too unwieldy to to work as articles. And a further factor was that I was I was working on them sort of more intensively, actually as a way of procrastinating um, what was kind of officially my main project, which I've been working on now for about fifteen years, uh, which was a book on Plato's Gorgias, uh, which is still unfinished, but. I feel like, you know, at least I've got this book out of it. Um, <laughs> so that was sort of, yeah, that was how it came to be written, really. Okay. So we're, can you also tell us a bit about Anscombe? I mean, she, this is 100th anniversary of her birth. She died not that long ago, 2008, I think. Um, uh, 2001, actually. 2001? Okay. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about her? I mean, and her, she, she was a, sure. a singular figure. I mean, she was a... Very uh, much so, yeah. 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 Well, she was she was famously uh, part of a group of women philosophers uh, who sort of came to prominence in Oxford uh, in during the war and immediately afterward, um, which was, I think, not not coincidental because um, there were m- very many fewer men around at that time. So, you know, the ways in which the uh, philosophical atmosphere for women might otherwise have been inhibited. Uh, were not in place, um, and uh, she quite early on, even as an undergraduate, I think, became interested in the work of Wittgenstein. And um, when she uh, had a research fellowship at Cambridge, she attended his lectures and, and became a, a sort of a sort of disciple of his, and uh, and also uh, eventually a, a close friend. Uh, and I think he died in um, 51, um, and she was one of his literary executors uh, and also edited and, uh, most importantly, translated um, most of the important works of Wittgenstein's that were published after his death. He only published one short book during his, during his life. Uh, the most important of the posthumous publications being the Philosophical Investigations, the first edition of which came out in 1953. Um, so the association with Wittgenstein is, is is important in a number of ways. I mean, it, certainly Wittgenstein, I think, maybe influenced her 
at a deeper level than he influenced anyone else, really. Um, but the the sort of the downside of it was, uh, as I see it, um, to a great extent, she was for a very long time thought of as first and foremost uh, a disciple of Wittgenstein. Yeah. Uh, and as time went on after after Wittgenstein's death and the influence of the investigations started to make itself felt, um, disciples of Wittgenstein acquired something of a reputation for uh, a certain kind of cultishness and, and dogmatism, um, in some cases quite, quite well-deserved reputation, I think, um, none of which I think ever really applied to Anscombe. Um, but I think the resurgence of interest in her um, has a, a number of causes, but um, one aspect of it is a sort of growing realization that she is like very much uh, an important and, and original philosopher in her own right. Um, I mean, in, in my view, like definitely one of the like very greatest philosophers of the 20th century um, in, in her own right. Um, okay, well, these, yeah. No, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, well, these these two papers certainly, you know, are, are part of that legacy for sure. Right. Well, let's, let's you know, talk about the, the first one that you address is, you know, Modern Moral Philosophy, which uh, was published in 1958. And, um, uh, you know, the, the short version is that she thinks that the term moral uh, and what it's a post to refer to is that, well, that the term is senseless and it doesn't add anything when you say that somebody has a moral reason. It's just, they just have a reason. And uh, if there's some sort of moral wrong, there's, it's just wrong. Um, and so the term itself is just literally senseless. Can you, can you say something about the philosophical context of her argument? I mean, you, you go into, into the in the book, it, the link to the rise of consequentialism, and then and then from there to this the idea that somehow consequentialist moral thinking or ethical thinking um, made possible things like justifying dropping the atomic bomb on uh, Hiroshima, right? right. And I, um, so, could you could you say a bit about the context of her, um, you know, denial of the meaningfulness of morality? Of the term morality, I should say. Right, yeah. Um, well, um, this is bound up with a way in which her paper, I think, was was almost universally misunderstood. Um, most people uh, supposed that her claim was that the vocabulary of morality had made sense when people believed in God, um, but that divine command was the only uh, legitimate underpinning for it. And so... Uh, once morality sort of, so to say, went secular, uh, it no longer was sort of legitimate or meaningful. That that wasn't her view at all. Uh, her, the view she's actually defending in that paper is that the vocabulary of morality uh, never made sense. Um, what did make sense when people believed in God or when people thought of ethics in terms of divine command was a particular... Um, what what philosophers would refer to as a, a particular form of practical necessity or modality, um, which is to say a, a particular uh, species of 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 um, of the term ought, uh, a certain uh, form of uh, obligation, and this kind of obligation was supposed to be 
uh, not teleological. That's to say, it wasn't a matter of like needing to do something in order to attain some end or avoid some some evil, uh, which was the the ancient version of ethical modality that we find in the Greeks. It was rather a form the form of modality which is associated with uh, keeping promises or contracts um, and other other kinds of convention. Uh, and also with uh, the idea of authoritative command, which, and of course, it was a species of the idea of authoritative command. That is, we, it was supposed to be the case that we ought not to murder people, for example, uh, because we had been authoritatively commanded not to um, by God originally uh, in, in the Torah. Um, and so... Anscombe's diagnosis of the vocabulary of morality is that uh, in the sort of secular age, beginning around the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, um, it, it was an attempt to sort of hang on to that very deeply ingrained non-teleological version of practical necessity, um, which, which had been, you know, completely bound up with divine command, but without the idea of divine legislator. And Anscombe's view is that uh, if you take away the idea of divine legislator, then uh, one is just not really any longer entitled to that species of practical necessity. Um, the, the, the idea of a divine legislator gives uh, the whole kind of point and purpose and meaning of that form of practical necessity. Uh, and so without the idea of divine legislator, um, the vocabulary uh, just sort of, or, or the, the attempt to express that kind of practical necessity just sort of falls to the ground and becomes uh, completely senseless. Um, so that's, that's the sort of genealogical aspect of her diagnosis. Okay. Um, so it, it might be good to also step back because the criticism of morality, of course, is not a criticism of of ethics, and of course, for many of us, uh, those are just synonymous, basically. Right. So, how does how does she distinguish those? Well, um, it's it has quite a lot in common with um, with the distinction between ethics and morality, which one also finds in in uh, in Bernard Williams. Uh, and especially in his book, uh, Ethics and Limits of Philosophy. So um, extrapolating somewhat from, from particular things Anscombe says, um, ethics is the broader category of, mix, of which morality is a kind of species or a purported species. And ethics is just sort of any systematic inquiry into sort of what to do or how to live. Um, and that originates in the West with, uh, with the Greeks and especially with Socrates. Um, and the Greeks thought of it entirely in terms of the, the idea of, uh, the Greek term is eudaimonia. It's variously translated as, uh, happiness or human flourishing or well-being. <clears throat> excuse me, mm -hmm. or, um, something along those lines. And, and equally central is the concept of virtue, uh, arete, um, which, but the Greeks meant by, by that term, uh, something rather different from the, from the associations that English word now has. And the Greeks just meant um, a quality of character which was more or less necessary for the attainment of eudaimonia. 
Um, so that was sort of the original form that ethical inquiry took in the West. Um, morality is, as I say, a particular uh, purportedly way of thinking about ethics. Uh, and that centers on, as, as I was saying earlier, this very uh, supposedly particular sui generis notion of obligation. Uh, and derivatively, uh, consideration, reason, trait of character, etc. But first and foremost, um, I think it characterizes a species of obligation. Um, and w- Williams is, is, is very good on this in, in sort of um, pointing out the, way, the ways in which the vocabulary of morality really is structured around this supposedly special notion of obligation. Um, this is something we don't find in the Greeks um, or indeed in, in uh, philosophy in the Middle Ages, except for the divine command part of morality. So if you look at Aquinas, for example, um, aside from his you know, obvious emphasis on divine command, he, he also takes over uh, you know, the entire vocabulary of virtue and eudaimonia um, as he finds it in Aristotle. Uh, but there's there's no hint of any sort of non-religious version of a special ver- form of of obligation or practical necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all just about happiness and character. Um, and so, you know, it's important to see that secular morality is is really something very new, um, considered as 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 a, a way of doing ethics. Okay, so um, to 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 press more on the the greek view of virtue that you mentioned you you call it a egoistic eudaimonistic as you've as you've just mentioned um as opposed to what you call a victorian view of of virtue right um uh can you can you explain that that different concept that you know she thinks is is not somehow infiltrated by this this actually senseless um you know, idea of some special category of obligation that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, when, when I say egoistic, this is a bit tricky because um, I mean egoistic only by contrast with a conception of altruism that that's actually distinctive of, of the ideology of morality. Um, I mean, in a way, I think prior to the ideology of morality, what what I'm calling egoistic, really just amounted to uh, you know anything that would count as an intelligible reason. So um, I think prior to morality, um, there was a sort of consensus that uh, for anything to count as a reason for doing something, you know, in some sense, one had to be able to make out a case that that doing that thing gets the agent something that the agent wants. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a sort of ingredient that's more or less explicitly excluded by the idea of morality because it's often thought of as kind of definitionally contrasted with um, self-interest. Um, but for for the Greeks, for example, then, um, a virtue was not an inherently altruistic notion. The, the, the bare concept was just uh, a quality of character necessary for the attainment of eudaimonia. And by and large, when it came to the virtue of justice, there was a general consensus that this involved 
such uh, dispositions as keeping promises and not murdering people, uh, etc. At least when it came to one's friends and and sort of uh, fellow citizens. But the fundamental ground of it was was in the interests of the agent. Um, another way in which this should not be thought of as as egoistic in in a modern sense is that um, nothing follows. A, from from this conception of virtue about the reasons the agent ought to have in mind at the time they're performing the actions. Aristotle is very good on this. That is, for Aristotle, virtuous action is characterized by um, uh, a preoccupation with what he calls the noble or the fine. Um, Mm. And thoughts of self-interest are are not really supposed to be at the forefront, typically in in just actions at all. The connection with the interest of the agent uh, only kind of shows up when we're looking at the very much kind of ground level philosophical justification of what the agent's fundamental reasons might be for not even so much uh, performing these actions, but rather cultivating these traits of character and therefore becoming, you know, good Qua human being, a good specimen of of human being. So, so the whole point, of, really, of this approach to to ethics um, is to make intelligible uh, the the reasons that the agent might have for en- for engaging in you know recognizably ethical conduct um, in a way that the vocabulary of morality leaves seemingly entirely obscure, um, because morality is contrasted with. Uh, you know any recognizable form of uh, so-called self-interest um, then immediately becomes a philosophical problem uh, arguably an intractable one um, what reason uh, one might have for acting in conformity with with the ideology of of morality. Of morality, yeah. right. But I, I suppose you know the opposite problem of course always arises as well that um if you think of virtues um, uh, as reasons that one acts um, in that are in the interest of the agent, right? Right. Um, there's, of course, you know, even if one tries to build in this idea of, well, the you know, a good agent, uh, not morally good but virtuously good, um, uh, will keep promises and, and things like that, uh, it, it still leaves open the possibility that you could be a perfectly, or at least it seems you can be perfectly virtuous um, and not do those sorts of things that we would consider to be uh, altruistic or, you know, other regarding or something like that. Um, uh how how does one avoid that kind of opposite conclusion? I mean, the the, right. the morality structure has the opposite problem, right. where it seems like you don't know how to motivate the individual to you know into this you know into doing things for others, basically. Right. Uh, but the 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 virtue, the the Greek view, uh, seems to have the the exact opposite problem, where there doesn't seem to be any essential motivation to do things for others right yeah no i that's that's exactly right uh and uh the greek approach to ethics does face its own versions of of skeptical problems um possibly um most vividly and and effectively expressed in the character of calicles in in plato's gorgias um which 
also gives us an, uh, an interesting illustration of the points I've been trying to make about uh, the Greek concept of virtue, because the way Calicles um, expresses his own skepticism, he wants to he wants to draw a distinction between uh, conventional justice, which is the standard understanding on which it involves, you know, not not murdering people and keeping promises, etc., uh, and what he calls natural justice, which he wants to say is the true virtue of justice, uh, and that uh, is really only a, a quality of character that the strong and talented minority can really hope for anyway, and it consists of whatever qualities of character are involved in um, enabling oneself to to uh, dominate other people and expropriate their possessions. Um, but in calling it a virtue of natural justice, Calcles, I think, is being entirely serious, and Socrates never uh, hints at, at, at responding by saying, but, you know, that that's inconsistent with the concept of virtue. So this is, I think, a very clear illustration of the fact that there's nothing essentially altruistic about the Greek idea of virtue. And as I say, I think you're absolutely right that uh, Calcles does present a, like a very um, urgent and sort of dangerous sceptical threat to the standard ethical outlook. And so one might wonder, well, you know, in in what way then is is Greek ethics any any better off than the ideology of morality? Right. Um, and that that is an interesting question. I mean, I my own view would be that um, the the conceptual framework of of Greek ethics, structured around eudaimonia and virtue, etc., it at least holds out the prospect of making ethical motivation intelligible. That's to say, there is a difficult philosophical challenge there, which um, in a way, the entirety of Plato's Republic, for example, is devoted to trying to um, answer. Mm-hmm. Um, Not very successful. Well, arg- arguably. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah. so, but one way to also say, it, in a way, that uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics is 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 devoted to the same prospect. Mm-hmm. Although that that in that case, it's a more complicated question. But in any case, um, there is a recognisable philosophical program there, such that uh, if it were successfully completed then we would have an intelligible account of of uh standard understandings of ethical motivation whereas with the ideology of morality it's like there's there's nothing answering to that um Mm -hmm. it's sort of entirely committed from the start to uh a type of purportedly a type of reason um which has no essential reference to the interests or or, or wants uh, of the agent, and so that seems to be kind of, kind of um, uh, crippled by um, by paradox, so to say, from from the very start. Um, and and the, the, you know, arguably, um, that there's something kind of overreaching um, or uh, overplaying one's hand uh, involved in 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 the ideology of morality. Um, right. whereby there's, this is kind of a um, uh, very pure conception of altruism, which has a lot to do, I think, with um, unwittingly secularized ideals taken from Christianity, mm-hmm. um, which it's, it's a matter of kind of um, like, as it were, sort of writing ethical checks that can't philosophically be cashed. Whereas, as I say, with the Greek conception um, one is not at least not conceptually debarred from 
uh, from propounding an account of, of uh, intelligible ethical motivation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay. Um, so, uh, well, two questions, but I'll, I'll see how we go. Um, so you, you put her argument into in the form of um, three sort of interlocking theses, Um you know, the conclusion being that the, that the term moral and anything associated morality and so forth doesn't pick out a special category of obligation. Um, and so we should just get, get rid of that. Right. Um, and then one of the prior claims that you say that she establishes uh, on the way to, to that conclusion is the idea that, well, if we, if we could do moral philosophy, we would be better off using the virtues anyway, and the virtues in the Greek sense, right? Right. Um, and, but we can't do that uh, because the virtues are, you know, this is basically some sort of character thing, and that's psychology, and we can't really understand that yet. Right. Um, and I was just wondering if you might, you know, elaborate on that, uh, you know, why uh why she thinks that we would be able to do moral philosophy if we could do it with the virtues um and then also uh are we in a better position now than perhaps in 1958 which was part of the heyday of of behaviorism you know for one thing right. um uh you know, aren't we in a better position now to, to do virtue ethics in a kind of robustly psychological way? Yeah. Um, so Anscombe's remarks about um, our currently lacking an adequate conception of virtue, are, I mean, th this is in some ways bound up with what I, what I was just talking about. So, I mean, th I think the reason she thinks this is kind of our only hope if we want to do secular ethics is entirely a matter of what I've just been saying about it offering the only prospect of an intelligible motivation for recognizably ethical conduct. Um, whereas with the vocabulary of morality, we have a really a, a, a complete illusion because the the form of practical modality that it's trying to invoke uh, simply doesn't make any sense outside the divine command context. So it's sort of virtue ethics or, 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 or nothing. I mean, in Current moral or recent moral philosophy, um, you know, so-called virtue ethics, which Anscombe's paper is often thought of as having inaugurated a kind of revival of, um, is it's thought of as a particular kind of approach uh, to ethics, uh, and it's you know some kind of as it were third way between the the ideologies of you know Kantian absolutism and um, um, various forms of consequentialism. Um, the way Anscombe's thinking about it, I think, is that um, virtue ethics is just ethics. Um, you know, once we've abandoned the idea of divine command, and even the idea of divine command itself presupposes virtue ethics, because she, she defines in that paper a law conception of ethics as the view that 
what's required by virtue is also required by divine law. Um, so it's sort of the only game, only game in town uh, as far as Anscombe uh, is concerned. So getting, getting onto your question about, um, you know, what, what's needful in philosophy for, for that approach to ethics to, to have any prospect of working. Um, yeah, Anscombe clearly thinks that um, this is very much unfinished business from the ancient and medieval periods uh, in, in philosophy. Um, that even Aristotle, who I, I think she thought of plausibly as having produced sort of the most sophisticated and kind of highly evolved ver- version of, of this approach to ethics, um, did not succeed in really making clear what kind of what, what kind of phenomenon, um, what kind of uh, psychological structure uh, a virtue really is. Uh, and how it's related to uh, reasons for action and uh, all the other kind of phenomena that we invoke in our ordinary talk about human psychology. So on Anscombe's view, um, there are a lot of concepts uh, that belong to our ordinary talk about human psychology, um, which we sort of invoke every day, which we still don't have any sort of remotely adequate philosophical account of. And a central one would be intention, um, Mm -hmm. which she herself, of course, tried to make good on um, um, in her, in my view, her most interesting and profound uh, work, her her, uh, 1957 monograph, Intention. But there's a whole cluster of concepts um, which which need... uh, similar kind of working over philosophically, including um, you know, a reason, uh, especially reason for action, um, pleasure, um, uh, you know, voluntary versus involuntary, uh, mm-hmm. wanting or desiring, uh, and a whole range of, of what have come to be called um, propositional attitude terms like hope and fear and so on. Uh, and yeah, Anscombe's view was that the, these these were still like very much in darkness as far as a, a, a genuinely philosophical understanding of them was concerned. So you're also asking, you know, are things any different now? Um, I'm inclined to say not much. Um, and you know, moral philosophy is very much kind of trundled on in the same way as if okay. as if the um, what I take to be like the 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 real messages of, our, of Anscombe's paper uh, had never been presented. And, you know, the, there's, a, there's an, a huge and, and ever-increasing literature on, on moral philosophy that takes the category of the moral completely for granted uh, at, a, at a deep level. Um, and the, I think the, the vast majority of work in ethics, um, that, that's true of the vast majority of work of work in ethics. Um, mm. And I think with respect to philosophy of psychology or philosophy of mind and action, um, I don't think we're that much better off uh, than we were in 1958. Um, well, how, how about all the work that's being done in, you know, what's called moral psychology? Right. I mean, no, I don't want to disparage that at all. Um, mm-hmm. um, but it's one thing for there to be um, like, really kind of interesting and exciting work going on and another um, to be able to say that actual progress has been made. Um, uh-huh. And, but I think some progress has been made. I mean, I think 
I suspect, insofar as I understand it, um, that the work of Michael Thompson um, has advanced our understanding to some extent of of some of the um, sort of the foundations of of the concepts that get deployed in connection with with human action. Um, um, I, I also think, with respect to the ethical side of things, um, uh, Philip Foote's book Natural Goodness was was very helpful for me, anyway. <laughs> Uh, in understanding the kind of some of the peculiarities of of the kind of contours of the the any version of the concept of virtue which is is going to be remotely fit for purpose with respect to our current predicament in in philosophical ethics, Foot was also um, part of that generation, one of the women in that generation that I mentioned um, that came to prominence in in the war and was a I think she was also a fellow of the same college as Anscombe in Oxford for a long time, mm-hmm. and they, they, they were close friends. Um, so, I, yeah, I think her work's very important in this connection also. Okay. Um, one I don't, perhaps final question on this particular paper, but of some, one of the things you said um, just a moment ago, um, and we're talking about the idea of, you know, of motivation, right, the agent's motivation for doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, there's, I'm just wondering if you could clarify, it seems like, uh, there is this, she, she argues against, I mean, uh, you know, at least you say that she doesn't accept any sort of consequentialist view of ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, consequentialism itself is, is very often, sort of criticized, at least uh, in its hedonistic forms, perhaps, uh, as, you know, being entirely selfish, uh-huh. right? Uh, depending entirely on one's own, you know, what's good for me, what's good for my happiness. And 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 so the criticism of consequentialism um, or the, the – or it's – there seems to be a, a tension there between her being a, a sharp critic of consequentialism and the idea that consequentialists seems to ha- seem to put all the motivation in exactly the right place as far as the Anscombe's virtue th- theory seems to be. Right. Yeah. I I, th- I think I would want to take issue with that as a characterization of consequentialism. That is, I, I, okay. I think consequentialism um, isn't a, a, like any philosophical theory is an attempt to to make certain things more intelligible. Um, and indeed, you know, it's it's an attempt to make um, the idea of a of a ethical or so called moral reason uh, more intelligible. But I, I I think that from the perspective of of someone like Anscombe, apart from any other criticism she has of consequentialism, um, it's sort of um, doing it, so to speak, in the wrong place. That is, it's it's trying to make um, ethical concern intelligible by um, interpreting it in terms of supposedly better understood ideas like happiness or happiness, really in the case of, of Mill, I'd say, uh, or even pleasure. I mean, Mill said he was talking about pleasure, but really it, it turned out that he was talking about happiness. But, but someone like Bentham um, and also modern, certain more recent utilitarians are, are happy to talk about it in terms of, of pleasure. And so the purported increase in intelligibility comes from um, understanding um, 
ethical reasons and ethical concern uh, in terms of ideas which are supposedly uh, better understood and, and arguably even sort of quasi-scientifically respectable insofar as like pleasure can be thought of as, as uh, a kind of an empirical psychological phenomenon, which I would like totally dispute, but like that's what a lot of people think. Um, but when it comes to the issue of egoism versus altruism, I, my own sense is that most consequentialists and certainly utilitarians tend to sort of assume from, from the outset, um, often sort of without even giving it any kind of explicit consideration, that like the moral motivation is, is simply uh, uh, you know, concern for humanity as a whole, or even like for, for many utilitarians like Bentham and Peter Singer with sentient creatures as a whole. And no attention is really paid to the reasons why um, we're supposed to have that kind of concern as opposed to a more narrowly circumscribed concern, for example, with our friends and family, uh, let alone with like just oneself. Um, And so, again, I I think we're we're seeing here um, a kind of unconsciously inherited uh, assumption of kind of universal love, so to say, that, that we get from Christianity. Um, but even in the context of Christianity, I mean, the, the mainstream ethical tradition in Christianity is in a certain respect secular because with respect to the the strictly ethical commandments, um, someone like Aquinas thinks that they're overdetermined. That is that we can also give a kind of Aristotelian virtue type rationale for acting in accordance with justice, etc. Um, but when it comes to universal love, the Christians thought of that as uh, a theological virtue and having to do exclusively with with what's revealed, um, and so it's sort of particularly ironic that um, ethicists who sort of pride themselves on on their secular outlook would unwittingly have taken over from Christianity precisely the the aspect that the Christians themselves thought of as not having a secular rationale, um, and so if you you know if you Look at Bentham, for example. He he takes it as more or less self-evident that, you know, when it comes to a, a, a an ethical, in his terms, moral outlook, everyone's to count for one and none for more than one. In his expression, which is to say that one should think of one's own interests in with respect to, you know, if they're they're providing reasons for one's own actions, as really having no priority over the interests of literally anybody else. Uh, and mm. you do find, I think, this assumption being made. Um, very commonly by by consequentialist and and particularly utilitarian authors. Okay. Um, well, there's there's more to talk about for that article, but I do want to move on to the second part of the book, which is on uh, the article "The First Person," uh, which came out somewhat later, like 1975. Um, and there, she has another for another skeptical argument that. Um, the term I, which uh, seems by general consent to refer to oneself when one is using it, um, is not, in fact, a, um, uh, a term used to refer to oneself. Right. Um, so can you, can you say something about, again, about the, the philosophical context in which her skeptical argument arises? Right. Yeah. Um, so... Um, let's see. Uh, um, 
yeah, I think this this is a a, a thesis of of Anscombe's, um, which actually uh, depends upon a certain kind of uh, seismic shift in philosophical thinking, um, which in in many respects she very much disapproves of. And primarily here, I'm thinking about the uh, Cartesian revolution in the understanding of of mind, or, well, understanding or, or way of thinking about um, the mind. Um, you know, famously uh, a, a dualistic conception, um, which is related to introspection in a way that that no prior version of dualism, which is essentially a Platonic idea, um, had really expressed. Uh, and this is bound up in complicated ways with with uh, the the uh, one might, what one might call the reception of the scientific revolutions, uh, in which uh, Descartes himself was, of course, as a physicist, a major player. Um, but I'm, I'm just talking about that because um, uh, Anscombe's reasons for denying that the first person pronoun of the referring expression actually have a lot to do with the kind of thought experiment which um, has really come to prominence. Uh, as a consequence of the Cartesian way of thinking about mind. Um, and one version uh, of, or one thought experiment of that kind that Anscombe invokes in the first person um, is the uh, the notorious sensory deprivation tank, um, whereby we're, we're, we're to imagine, or I'm to imagine that I've been, uh, I'm suspended in a sensory deprivation tank um, with no sensory input and I'm, uh, everywhere sort of locally anesthetized, I can't um, gain any sensation of touch of any one part of my body in connection with any other, etc. Um, but Anscombe points out, um, even in this predicament, I can still obviously have first-person thoughts. Uh, in fact, the, the example she herself gives is, uh, I won't let this happen again. Um and the point there is um, that, I mean, Anscombe also wants to argue that if I has a reference, then it must be a referent that one knows to be present at the time one uses the word. Um, but of course, one cannot, well, I say of course, but arguably one cannot in that context, in the relevant sense, know that, um, that one's body is present. One has absolutely no sensory information kind of coming in um, that, that might be associated with uh, the reality of one's body. Uh, and so if, if I is a referring expression, then as it occurs in that context, in a thought like, I won't let this happen again, um, the only item on Anscombe's view that it could possibly refer to would be something very much like a sort of disembodied, uh, immaterial substance or Cartesian mm. ego, and Anscombe has like very deeply rooted um, reasons, largely deriving from from Wittgenstein and the philosophical investigations, uh, against uh, thinking of human beings as you know embodied Cartesian egos. And I think she plausibly sees like a, a great deal of the sort of the, uh, the whole thrust of of sort of Wittgenstein's philosophy of mind in, in his in his later work uh, as being sort of devoted to kind of overthrowing that that whole picture of human mentality um, and so very briefly the, the summary would be that I can't be a referring expression because if it were it could only refer to um, 
a Cartesian ego and there are no such things. And so it, if I were a referring expression, we, w- we would have to adopt what, what philosophers would call an error theory about all first-person judgments because they would all turn out to be false or, or maybe meaningless in virtue of their, their central um, term construed as a referring expression not having a referent. Mm. So, um, so if that's the modus tollens, then I mean, one an, another another approach would be to say that if it were a referring term, uh, is to deny, I guess, deny the conditional, right? Um, so if it if it referred to anything, it would refer to that Cartesian ego, but perhaps there's a way to block that conditional itself, right? rather than deny what seems to be patently, you know, true or obvious. I don't know. I mean, at least, again, I mean, she's arguing against this. But the idea that, you know, well, if if there is no such ego, then then I must not refer at all. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, this um, um, has to do with uh, one of the ways in which I think the uh, the dialectical situation with respect to this 1975 paper is very different from um, modern moral philosophy. Um, yeah. And, and you know, my aspirations in the book with respect to the later paper are much less ambitious. Um, I mean, I think you're right that there is, you know, there's clearly uh, a prima facie intelligible case to be made against that conditional that you know, if I was a referring expression, the only thing you could possibly refer to would be a Cartesian, a Cartesian ego. And in the literature, um, very many of the people who've taken issue with, with Anscombe's view here, which is to say pretty much everyone who's written about it, um, <laughs> have taken that tack and tried to argue that, no, no, you know, we, we, can, we can understand I as referring to um, you know, the human animal or the human body or, or something along those lines. Um, mm. And I don't have that much to say by way of uh, reinforcing that particular line of argument of, of, of Anscombe's. Um, much of what I say in the book has to do rather with a, with a different argument she presents near the beginning of the paper against the possibility of I being construed as uh, a device uh, by which the speaker refers to him or herself which, which mm. I refer to as the circularity argument. So she, I mean, that is probably too complicated to go into in, in any detail in this, in this context, but she's essentially arguing um, with some degree of convincingness, I think, that, that there is uh, really no way of uh, making out that claim in a, in a, in a non-circular fashion. Um, that is that the the only way of of make, of trying to make sense of the very special kind of self reference which I is supposed to be able to affect um, the only way of making it out uh, turns out to presuppose uh, that special kind of self reference itself um, and so I, I do suspect she's really onto something there that, that there is something uh, still highly obscure about the very special character of self-reference that's supposed to be involved with I, because th- there is supposed to be a certain kind of infallibility involved in that special kind of self-reference. So I might refer to myself, for example, by using the expression Jimmy Doyle, um, without knowing that I am referring to myself, because I might be amnesiac or whatever. But I doesn't work like that, right? I is supposed to have this very different and special kind of self-referential capacity 
um, such that I can't fail to know I'm referring to myself if I use the expression I. Uh, and it's in connection with that aspect of the special status of I that Anscombe launches this uh, this claim of this this argument that um, the attempts to make sense of it all turn out to be circular. And so in the book, a, a lot of my point there is that, as I say, much less ambitious than the case of modern moral philosophy, where I'm saying um, roughly Anscombe's been completely misunderstood. And furthermore, when you understand her correctly, she's right. Um, mm. With the first person paper, I'm more saying Anscombe's like issued a very serious challenge here with the circularity argument and um, the philosophical uh, community, so to speak, has not really risen to it. And I, I examine a number of um, very interesting attempts to, to meet the challenge um, by uh, philosophers like um, Gareth Evans and Lucy O'Brien and um, Ian Rumford, uh, and, right. I, and I argue that um, for various reasons they they haven't actually met the challenge. And so, you know, uh, Anscombe's Anscombe's challenge still stands. You know, whatever one thinks ultimately about whether we can make sense of the idea of I being a referring expression, any adequate account of that um, still has unfinished business in the form of. Um, answering this this challenge that Anscombe issues near the beginning of the paper. Okay, so could you? Um, I mean, you 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 went a little bit into the circularity problem, but um, could you could you state it maybe briefly just to clarify exactly what it is? Right. Um, oh, this this might be a bit of, a bit of a challenge because I you know I, I, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't thought about this in any detail uh, anywhere near as recently as I have. Um, uh, the modern moral philosophy stuff. But the example uh, Anscombe gives is um, uh, someone, John Smith, um, who uses the name, uh, I think it's something like John Horatio Algernon Smith or something, uh, which he which he's reading in a, in a legal document, say a will, um, which actually refers to himself, but he doesn't realise that in, the con- in that document – uh, the, the name is referring to himself. Maybe he doesn't, for some reason, know his own full name. But uh, in any case, the, the the point of the example is that um, well, we can't just rest content with the idea that the word "I" uh, is is a um, a word that uh, any speaker uses to refer to him or herself, because after all, John Horatio Algernon Smith is is an expression that John Smith is using. Uh, to refer to himself, but um, clearly that's not the same kind of self-reference that we suppose it to be involved with the first-person pronoun. Um, then, of course, there's the the obvious rejoinder. Um, well, yes, but um, um, when we use the word "I," we always know we're referring to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and Anscombe says, "Well, but then again." Um, uh, John Horatio, sorry, John Smith is aware that the expression John Horatio Algernon Smith is being used by him um, to refer to John Horatio Algernon Smith, and John Horatio Algernon Smith is in fact himself. So, in that sense, he does know that he's using the term to refer to himself. And um, sorry, this is where my own thought starts to get slightly hazy. That there, there is a very standard kind of um, rejoinder to that, uh, deriving from. Uh, Frege's treatment of what happens to referential expressions um, in what philosophers call opaque or indirect speech contexts. Um, mm. And Anscombe, Anscombe has a somewhat elaborate argument to show that that standard Fregean strategy will not, in fact, work 
uh, in this context. Um, and the, there is still something left unexplained about the use of the word I and the very special kind of um, mode of self-reference that it affects, um, which can't be dealt with in that way. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. where the circularity charge um, starts to bite. I'm sorry I can't okay. go into more detail with that right now. I should have, I should have boned up on that more before. before well, that's, that's no, no worries. I mean, we're actually, I don't have a lot of time left, um, unfortunately. Um, but I just want to, you, you actually make an attempt to build on, I, I guess it's Rumfit, uh, essentially, um, or mostly, on making sense of I as, as not referring, as a, as a dummy name right. in some <clears> way. <throat> Um, maybe you could, you know, I don't know, briefly, we, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, but if you could maybe sketch your proposal. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, in the event, um, I, I sort of come down on the side of, 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 of saying um, eventually that, that this doesn't look like it has much prospect of success. Um, <laughs> uh, the idea would be that, um, in a way, uh, uh, saving um, the referentiality of I, um, but, but by, and, and so it, you know, in a sense, this is a way, this is a version of the strategy that many of Anscombe's opponents on this view, um, um, in, 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 in this debate, um, the way they've gone, which is to deny that the referent of I would have to be a Cartesian ego. Um, as I said, some people would, would, would argue, I think Strawson and McDowell have, have suggested that um, no, no, it's the, it's the embodied human animal that could still be construed legitimately as the referent of I. Um, the the approach that I'm examining toward the end of the book um, involves the idea of, of of an abstraction. That is that um, we we interpret I as making reference to um, uh, an abstract object, um, which is um, uh, essentially um, constructed on the basis of um, the purported truth of all the I judgments that we want to say are true. Um, it's sort of uh, the, abs- the the roughly speaking the 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 idea of the abstraction would be um, you know what would what we would need to construe as the abstraction to which the word I refers if these judgments are themselves all going to come out as true. Um, and I have to confess that like at this part of the book, um, it very much sort of straining against the limits of my own philosophical competence. And, um, I possibly unwisely there sort of stray to some extent into, a, a very large recent literature on the idea of abstraction, um, which has actually largely been triggered by a certain program in the philosophy of mathematics, um, namely a, 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 an attempted revival of a version of uh, Frege's uh, realist proposals about how to construe um, arithmetic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, you can probably already see this is, this is all getting a bit arcane. Um, <laughs> but I, I, so I try and look at some of the uh, ideas about abstraction that have been made plausible by various writers on, on, in these areas Um and as I say, the verdict I come to is that, um, for various reasons, this does not really look like a very, um, a very promising um, um, solution uh, to the problem mm-hmm. of finding a referent for I. I. It has a lot in common with the with with 
the arguments of philosophy who, the philosophers who are skeptical about the Fragian program in, in, in the philosophy of mathematics. Um, mm-hmm. And f- so one, one um, suggestion, uh, critical suggestion there would be that um, there's a kind of uniqueness problem which isn't solved. That is, uh, if, we, if we construe I as referring to an abstraction, um, that there's, there are going to be very, very many uh, possible abstractor, um, which, which would be sort of candidates for the referent of I, and there would be no principled way of choosing between them. And so for that and various other reasons, my, my final suggestion is really that this is, this is not going to work. Uh, as a mm. as a solution to the uh, problem of finding a referent. Okay, um, so I think uh, we are we are out of time. I'd like to end with a question about where uh, what where your research is going next. I mean, are you going to? You said you were working on a, a different book that you had set aside, or is, what's your next project? Right. Uh, um, well, I'm I'm now working on like a number of different projects, uh, more or less simultaneously. Uh, the Gorgias book is still uh, in process, but uh, Anscombe-wise, um, I've been working a lot on the the book I mentioned, her 1957 monograph, Intention, um, and I, I, I'm hoping to um, to produce a, a not exactly a commentary, but but a, a book primarily about that book of Anscombe's, um, mm-hmm. perhaps in a similar way in which the the that the book we're talking about is about those two papers um and then the other main thing i'm working on at the moment is well there's two other main things actually one is a sort of textbook about the history of ethics um of which the kind of the hidden agenda would be um to sort of legitimate the um the account of the history of ethics that's implicit in um modern moral philosophy um Mm. and then uh, i'm also working on on um augustine's confessions um, which is a book I've been I've been teaching quite a lot recently, and and I find like especially interesting. Uh, and so I'd also like to um, uh, to produce a book about that. Excellent. So uh, well, I'm uh, uh, I look forward to hearing about those uh, various projects. And um, in the meantime, thanks again for agreeing to talk about this particular book and i wish you luck with your uh with the future projects as well uh thanks very much and uh thanks for having me um this has been been a lot of fun thank you great bye-bye bye you've been listening to my interview with james doyle lecturer in philosophy at harvard university we've been talking about his new book no morality no self anscombe's radical skepticism which is just out from harvard university press I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast and thank you for listening.